back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation in our denomination. So we're having conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. We want to keep saying thanks to all of you who are sharing our content and just faithfully listening every week. We really, really appreciate it, and our listenership continues to grow each week, so keep up the good work. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single Monday. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's conversation, which is part two of our conversation with Tyler Wagonmaker. When I was a kid, I didn't enjoy memorizing. It was like pulling teeth. Um... So I liked playing dodgeball. I, I liked uh, I, I liked that aspect of church. I, I didn't. Uh, I you know sometimes I found it a bit boring actually going to class. But I was a kid, so I was a stupid kid. Um. Uh, so teach me what I need to know. D- don't don't base don't base what I should be taught and, and what should be done to me based on me as you know as a fourth grader or fifth grader. I'm immature. Uh, there's a lot I don't know about the implications of things. So teach it to me, require it of me. And, uh, and, you know, looking back on it, especially now, now, especially I'm very thankful for that because it gave me a good foundation. It gave me the language of the faith, gave me an appreciation much more so and a working knowledge even of the confessions. So it's not some, uh, you know, beast off to the side that, uh, that I know very little about, um, you know, teach it to me when you're, when I'm young, even if I don't want to do it. Okay. A lot of things we don't want to do in life. That's life. That that's the commitment of life. The, uh, you know, things that are worthwhile in life, relationships that are worthwhile, things knowing that requires work, which is, I could go off on a tangent on, on this, Jason, but this is why, for instance, these, uh, 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 examinations that, that we have that classes do of ministers. And I think they, and I hear this from, from those who are church visitors who go and sit in on these examinations to another classes. I I'm hearing, I hear from so many of them. Oftentimes they lament the quality of the examinations now and the quality of the answers. I mean, we're letting outright Arminians into our pulpits. Uh, it's just craziness. And, and classes are just saying, okay, just giving a pass. Well, you know, they'll maybe grow in this. We'll put up with Arminianism for a little bit from our pulpit and, and training us. But see, part of it is, I, I think that demonstrates, we just don't, we don't value, we don't value this stuff enough because we're, if we valued it, you know, we don't have that same approach towards medical doctors. Medical doctors are like, oh yeah, you'll learn on the job, I guess. So go ahead and try to do surgery on a bunch of people and you'll eventually get it, you know, a couple of years down the road, maybe. Um, we don't take that same approach when people go to medical boards. We don't take that same approach when you're a lawyer and you're defending someone's life or livelihood in a court case. You want someone who's competent, who knows the law and who's able to articulate it. Why do we take this sloppy kind of approach towards those who are doctors of the soul, who are lawyers of God's holy word? Um, uh, we, we let so many people in, in many ways, 
um, uh, in, in, into these ordained offices who aren't able to articulate, uh, who, who have very little working knowledge of the confessions. Uh, they, you know, many of them didn't have this catechesis even when they're young. And in seminaries, it's not like the seminary says, we need you to be able to recite all question and answers of the Heidelberg Catechism before we pass you and uh, give you your degree. We don't require that. Um, sometimes it's just one class and part of a class that you get. Maybe you, maybe you get mm-hmm. all three confessions in one class. Uh, it, it's, it's very discouraging in that sense because we don't, we don't take it seriously enough. That being this, this ought to be the most serious thing because you know if I botch it in, in a surgery, a lot of people will grieve and someone will die. But um, uh, but there's an eternity afterwards for that individual. Mm-hmm. If I botch it as a minister and I mislead people with the wrong gospel, that has implications for their eternity, for for, for where they you know for eternal life or eternal death. And I don't think we have that that kind of sense of the the gravity, the weightiness of what we're called to as pastors, those who do pastoral work. Um, uh, where's the weightiness on that? Where's the, the, the urgency on some of that? Where's the, the passion about that? I, I, sometimes I just don't see that in the Christian Reformed Church too. The, the, the weightiness of it, because we're, we're so content uh, and we're so happy about our intellectualism almost that we're just so even keeled and we're weighing, you know, this and this and this. And, and, it's like the the urgency, the intensity, the the passion for for God's word and the truth of it just it it just kind of seeps out to, to where I don't know. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. I uh, it's it's interesting. Um, one of the one of the things that I keep getting really um, weird looks from people is when I talk about how we have this assumption in the Christian Reformed Church that we're intellectual as we're overly intellectual, people keep saying, ah, the CRC, we're just overly intellectual. And I keep saying, I don't see that. I I don't see that at all. Maybe we used to be 40, 50 years ago, maybe. Um, But now that's not the case at at all. And, uh, and I've said this before, and I, I, I did enjoy my time at Calvin Seminary, but, um, I've talked to a number of my classmates and their, their biggest, uh, frustration coming out of Calvin Seminary was the lack of theological depth that we got there. And people go, wait, no, that's Calvin Seminary. We're, we're overly theological and overly intellectual. And I'm saying, no, we keep thinking that we're overly intellectual. And so we keep dumbing everything down to the point where we're not. And we all kind of assume that we are. And, you know, and I want to jump back to when you were talking about um, these examinations and uh, and how many people lament some of the answers that are that are being given and uh, and a number of people saying, well, it's OK if they don't understand that. Well, they'll learn on the job or whatever. Do you think um, do you think, Tyler, that 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 has some um, that's the result of a changing in the role of the pastor? That that's one of the things I've been wrestling with, where I think there's. Over the years, there's been a change in the role of a pastor. People don't see the pastor as a teacher. You're not a teacher. You're a you're a you're a you're there to kind of counsel my feelings. You're there to be there when I'm when I have a bad day, um, but you're not there to teach me the Bible. 
And so then if you're not a teacher, then you don't really need to know this stuff. Just understand the gospel I put in quotes and then you're good enough to go and be a good people person. Oh, for sure. I, I think the, the, the role of the pastor has changed. We've become more broadly religious social workers uh, in many ways, um, rather than doctors of the soul, um, resident theologians, where we, we are to be in God's word and meditating on it and, and conveying it. I think some of that, it just through kind of orthopraxis, you know, what we do shapes what we believe. Many churches have gotten rid of the evening worship service, for instance. What does that do? I mean, the effect of that is now the minister also prepares half, usually half the amount of sermons um, uh, that he's been preparing leading, you know, prior to that time. Well, that, that removes the minister from being in God's word, being in the confessions in a serious way. Um, so we've essentially told the minister, uh, yeah, we want you, you know, because all these, these pastoral search committees, they always put up there at the top, yeah, we want someone who loves the word, who preaches the word. Uh, but when push comes to shove, a lot of times it doesn't demonstrate itself in terms of, but we don't, we don't want you to preach too much. Um, uh, we, we don't want you to be in, we don't want to spend too much time in worship. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't want the minister to be too overwhelmed. So maybe we'll teach, have you teach one Bible study, maybe. Um, forget about teaching all the catechism. I mean, the minister used to teach all the catechism classes. I look at some of these, uh, some of these old yearbooks of these churches they put out. The minister would teach all the kids from young to old alike through 12th grade, and they would meet multiple days throughout the week or, you know, multiple times on two, one or two days. And, uh, and they would teach men's society, ladies society. Now, I'm not saying that's a healthy thing in terms of for a pastor for his home life and for his family life, uh, because that means the minister pretty much lives at the church. Uh, so, but that is to say that at the time, there was a, a greater emphasis on ministers being preachers, teachers of the word. And that translated in what churches wanted them to spend their time doing. And therefore, what we expected of ministers when it came to theological education, when it came to um, classical examinations. Now we just want to know a lot of times, are you a nice person? And uh, do you, you know, are you generally loving? And uh, do you, when people come up to you, do they get a feel like they're meeting Jesus? And so if you, if you meet those qualifications and you're not an outright, outright heretic, welcome aboard. Uh, so, but that's, you know, our, our forefathers and foremothers would roll over in their graves uh, at that as, as almost that's the standard that it's come to. That does not bode well for the denomination. Uh, so I, that's why I would say that the only hope of the denomination in many ways is to reacquaint ourselves and reinvigorate our, our sense of identity. Why do we exist as a denomination? Are we essentially there to, to hand out credentials to religious social workers so that there's some sort of legitimacy to what we do in the eyes of the public and in the eyes of the church? Um, or is there a greater sense of we're, we're here because there are a set of really solid common beliefs that unite us and, uh, and that we're continuing to be refined by because none of us are fully always there. Um, uh, we always need to be in check. You know, we have a sin problem. We have a problem of, of sinful practices, sinful beliefs. We need the church to keep checking us. Ministers need to be checked. We need to check ourselves. That's one of the values of being in God's word. 
is that the spirit uses that to refine us and refine me and um and so and to convict me of my sins on that but we need to be in god's word to do that uh, and so we need to to really emphasize that i don't even know if uh, maybe that's not even where where you yeah i think it went off in a different direction sorry jason if so <laughs> no i i think there's merit in every last thing you said um i remember actually one of the first times I actually heard you speak at Synod, you were speaking to the issue of uh, the second service being not emphasized uh, in our church order anymore. And I, I thought to myself, everything he's saying is absolutely right. And this seems to be very neglected by a large uh, representation uh, in that synodical body. Uh, so I just kind of wanted to ask you, uh, not specifically about the issue of the Lord's Day in our church order, but more of that synodical experience. Um, how, how was that for you? I understand that was your third time as a delegate. And uh, is, is that correct? Probably. <laughs> Sometimes fuzzy on the details of things, Willie. I have to go back to the record. So that's why I like books, because it reminds me actively of things that my brain doesn't always act remember so i will trust you on that because i'm a trusting person <laughs> so um uh on that but but you know it was a good experience i it's stressful always going to send it because i know i i i approach it as we're there not just to fill a seat we're there not just to almost rubber stamp the work of the agencies and so that's what we're there to do is just almost a perfunctory sort of symbolic sense of here's the authority of synod and we continue to give a blessing to to uh the employees and the ministry workers and what they're doing you know i approach it kind of old school we're there to have the vigorous debates and raise the questions because if we don't who's asking these questions who's debating it where is this taking place so uh so i always go into synod with a bit of fear and trepidation and yet also an excitement, fear and trepidation, because I know that there's inevitably going to be things on the agenda that I'm going to have to object to or speak against or be in the minority on. It's never a fun thing to, um, uh, to, to know that people um, uh, think you're crazy on a position. I mean, who wants to be thought of as, you know, your way out there? Um, I don't think I am way out there. So, so and I'm willing to defend <laughs> that and, and put that forward. Uh, so, you know, it's not, it's not always, it's not always something I relish to, to kind of get in there and, 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 and theologically scrap around with others on this and church order and even procedural issues. It's never a joy. Um, but then I think, but we're the church militant right now. This is what we're supposed to do on some level as the church, this side of heaven, I'll, I'll enjoy the glories of, of heaven and, uh, and the sweet by and by when I die, and then I'll be part of the church triumphant. But I'm not part of the church triumphant now. I'm part of the church militant. I have to militate against sin in my own life. We have to militate against false doctrine and teachings and practices in the church here too. And so that's part of the church militant. And so part of the this, and, and that's supposed to take place at synod. Uh, I mean, we're supposed to be, you know, supporting each other and rejoicing when good stuff is happening. But calling each other on the carpet in Christian love and challenging each other when it's not or moving in a bad direction. And, uh, and that's what synod is for. That's why I lament that we haven't had synods 
uh, and lament that we weren't able to, the COD wasn't able to come up with a way that we were able to even creatively have a synod uh, this year, um, because I think that's important for the life of the church um, uh, to create that. And so, boy, I was going to make another good point and uh, it's gone. So probably wasn't a good point. <laughs> so another question that we ask, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I want to just ask it um, explicitly, what are some of the concerns that you're seeing um, throughout the Christian Reformed Church right now? Um, I would say uh, a lack. It, it, it seems like a lack of, of uh, a deep-rooted confidence and passion for the authority of Scripture. I know we give, it almost feels like we give lip service to it because that's just one of the things you do. Yep, the Bible's important. Yep, prayer's important. Uh, but, um, that, that translates a lot of times into the discussions and conversations we have is to say, what does the Bible say? Let's go back to the Bible. And we're not having those conversations generally. Usually the conversations are about procedural issues and about human man-made laws and, uh, codes of conduct and all that, which, you know, that, which we've created. And so those are where we're having the conversations, um, you know, the confessions, the beauty of the confessions is they send us back to God's word um, and they root in God's word. And so even when I preach through the catechism, I preach through the Belgian, I'm preaching through the Belgian confession right now on Sunday mornings um, or uh, preach through the canons of Dort. Um, you know, I don't preach on something that says, OK, let's um, uh, let's base our text completely on what the confessions have to say. Um, instead, uh, instead, we say, what does. Um, what does God's word have to say? So we expound scripture. Um, we keep needing to go back to scripture. Uh, so that's what we need to keep doing, you know, uh, you know synodically, uh, what we need to keep doing denominationally. Um, we have to keep saying, what does God's word say? Not is, you know, are my grandkids going to leave the church because it's taking a difficult position? That's the wrong question. Not that that's not a concern if you're a grandpa or a grandma, for instance, um, uh, because there were those relational concerns, but denominational, we, and as churches, we have to say, what does, above all, what does God want me to do? Um, and that's not always an easy thing. Um, sometimes it's a difficult, you know, like the doctrine, you know, I preached on, uh, article 16 of Belgian confession yesterday, doctrine of predestination, rich, deep doctrine, not always the easiest teaching, uh, sometimes it's a hard teaching. Even when Jesus talked about it and um, in John chapter six, he, he expounded in John chapter six in a very powerful way, the doctrine of predestination. And, uh, and, and, you know, one of the consequences of that is all these disciples that were following Jesus were like, this is a hard teaching. Who can take it? Who can understand it? And they laughed Jesus. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, but not the 12. And so Jesus, you know, to be, you know, to Peter, are, are you going to leave me too? And uh, to the disciples, and, and Peter says, well, who, where else can we go? Where else should we go? You have the words of life, Lord. Um, so, yeah, it's, sometimes it's, it's difficult. Sometimes the church will take difficult positions, even for our own selves. We don't always want to hear that. It's not always an easy thing. Um, but we still have to do it because God wants, our first question is, what does God want of me? 
Um, uh, you know, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think we, it seems like we've elevated a second commandment, which is like it, to make that the greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And oh, by the way, let's also talk a little bit about what God wants us to do. But it seems like in the denomination, we keep talking about what does it look like to love your neighbor? Um, uh, to, to almost a neglect of what does it look like to love God? Because if we don't get the first one right about loving God, we're not going to get the second one right about loving your neighbor. Amen. Yeah. And um, I want to keep rolling on this a little bit because some of the conversations I've been having with people are um, a number of people have said, oh, a lot of the issues in our denomination right now are because we have such different views of scripture. And so some people have said, maybe we need to go back and do another study committee on our view of the authority of scripture or whatnot. And I have said, um, maybe, but um, what we really need to keep doing is taking these practical issues like the, the sexuality report and say, what does the authoritative word of God say about this? And then take another issue and say, what does the authoritative word of God say about this? Because what, otherwise what happens is you have people saying, oh, of course, I believe in the authority of scripture. Of course I do now. Um, but I'm going to hold on to this. And you have to say, no, 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 hold on a second. The authoritative word of God speaks to this issue as well. And so there's a way of emphasizing the authority of God's word by diving down into the practical aspects of faith and even into some of these um, controversial issues. Agreed. Yes. And that, and uh, that's the practical application and the use of it. And we need to do that on a regular basis. Uh, when we talk about these issues, sometimes it's just the fleshing out of, of, of what does scripture teach, going through the process of doing it. I mean, that's where I go back to the, the importance of ministers preparing multiple sermons in a week. This past week, for instance, I had to prepare three sermons. We had Ascension Day, morning or morning uh, worship, evening worship, for instance. And uh, so, and that's just on, on a preaching thing. But one of the things that the values of is it gets us in God's word and then we have to apply it. But there's there's value in taking scripture and applying it to a practical mm -hmm. ethical situation, for instance. Um, but but we got to practice it. Um, uh, we have to do it in order to get better at it. In order for and the Holy Spirit works through that. It's a means of grace. I mean, is it a means of grace or is it not a means of grace? It's a means of grace. Let's put confidence in it and uh, let's trust the Holy Spirit's going to use that to keep shaping us, sanctifying us, and sanctifying the church, making the church holy. And then that's where we're going to find greater unity when we have a, a coalescing around the truth. Um, the sense of unity almost at all costs, that's not a biblical concept. In fact, a lot of times Jesus talks about there's going to be, he's going to create division. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so so th this is the importance of scripture, interpreting scripture. We can't just take one passage out of the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus and say, um, see, Jesus wants us all to be one. Therefore, we're, we're, one at all costs. That's not a reformed hermeneutic. That's not a personal scripture interpreting scripture. Let's deal with it. Don't proof text me uh, on that out of context. One of the, that always astounds me actually too, because one of the things even at Calvin college uh, and, you know, Calvin seminary too, would say, you know, we're not a bunch of fundamentalists. Fundamentalists just take one, you know, they proof, they like to proof text. And uh, I see so much awful proof texting taking place now in some of our agencies where they take one verse and it's not in the context of the rest of the teachings of scripture and a full orb teaching of scripture. I'm like, you're a bunch of fundamentalists without holding to the fundamentals of the faith. And um, uh, so, and uh, 
So it, it makes it difficult to, uh, to be able to have a common ground um, scripture um, if, it's, if it's abused. I would like to see, actually, I think it might be healthy that every three years or five years, at most five years, we go to every um, uh, ordained office bearer and we say, re-up, so, you know, sign the covenant of office bearers again. If you can't do it, okay, that's the answer. Because people change. Ministers change. Life experiences shape us. Sometimes where someone is at the beginning of their ordination is a different place than they're at the end of their ordination in terms of their theological beliefs. And uh, I've seen that happen before where those who were maybe even just solidly at least confessed a solid kind of uh, commitment to the Reformed way of understanding because of life circumstances, you know, aren't in the Christian Reformed Church anymore. You know, pastor like in the UCC, United Church of Christ or something like that because they've changed. So let's be honest about that and let's say, okay, let's have, let's try to maintain some level of integrity of what it means to, you know, to hold to God's word and practice it. Maybe we have to actively ask, maybe even go through a, a type of a minor sort of colloquial doctum sort of thing for every minister every few years. Just ask that minister the questions about some of the faith. Do you believe this still? How do you defend this? It would be good for the the, the delegates to hear that, the elders, the deacons, the other pastors to hear that. It would be good experience for the ministers to do that. We shouldn't be afraid of being able to... to to give an answer for the hope that's within us, and especially as ministers, to be able to articulate that in more um, a nuanced, uh, sort of mature ways as we continue in the ministry. Yeah, amen. Well said. Um, I'm just wondering, kind of as our, our time is drawing to a close, I'm wondering, as you've been in the CRC for a long time and have kind of assessed the landscape for, for quite a number of years now, um, with where we sit and where we're at in history right now as a denomination, what steps do you think that ministry leaders, church leaders, pastors uh, need to take to, in a sense, ensure uh, the survival of the CRC or to make sure that this remains a reputable and orthodox denomination? Oh, what steps? Oh, uh, family devotions. Just, just having, making a priority for families to have meals together, um, or for those who are single and not married to main, you know, to build those relationships with those in the church so that you can have a meal irregularly. I think just having faith conversations around the table is one of the ways that used to be an underpinning of the, of the Christian reformed church was, you know, I, I come across once in a while, these little sort of pocket Psalter hymnals. Uh, and, uh, and, and even before then they were just pocket Psalms with just, you know, one notes and, and, and families, different family members would have that because you would around the dinner table, you would sing from the Psalter hymn, hymn book. Imagine that. And, uh, and you would sing the hymns or you would sing the Psalms and eventually you would sing the hymns when they were added to and you would read God's word and you would have those conversations. It all starts in the home. So, you know, it needs to start in the home. The, the, you know, we talk a lot about the three-legged stool, the church, the home, and the Christian school, at least in, uh, you know, the Christian Reformed tradition, three-legged stool. And in order to have a good, solid foundation, you need good three solid legs. Um, but it still starts in the home. If it doesn't happen in the home, 
it's very difficult then for the church and the school to, to make a lasting kind of influence and change. So it needs to start in the home and that will feed over and, and uh, in a healthy way, carry over into spiritual lives in the church and in the school. I mean, I could see that even just personally, anecdotally, even my own self, starting in the home. My parents took it very seriously about going to church. Went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, special worship services, Ascension Day, prayer day service, Thanksgiving. I mean, uh, if there was a special worship service called, you're there because the elders said you're there. You take it seriously. You know, you didn't. the only time you didn't go to church is like if you're vomiting. Um, uh, you're like, Bleh. Other than that, it's like, go to church. Uh, I have a headache. Okay. You can have a headache in a pew in church too. So, um, so we could, you know, I mean, some of, but it was communicated early on the importance of, of church and not in some cold legalistic way, but it was lived out in my parents' life and an and ethicalness and a love for the Lord. You, you know, it, there has to be a genuineness too. That's, it's, it's a head and a heart thing. Um, otherwise, if, if it comes down in just a very legalistic way, it, it's very difficult to take root in the lives of children because they, they see this is, this is a forced kind of uh, um, set of straitjacket that my parents had to live into. And I don't need to live into that because it's a new age and we do things differently. I mean, there are a number of those who were raised Christian Reformed Church that left the Christian Reformed Church. I think about my own family. Uh, in terms of uh, you know my folks and their and their siblings, they all grew up Christian Reformed. I don't think any of them are Christian Reformed nowadays. Um, uh, thankfully, most of them go to church, but um, uh, but they're like uh, it was just a bunch of legalism. It was just a bunch of we did it just because this is how you did it. And so you know how much of that is the spirit of the age? How much of that is you know maybe it need to be communicated in a more authentic kind of warm intentional way in the home I and mean, we can always kind of dissect why things didn't work the way they were supposed to work uh, but that doesn't mean that we still shouldn't be intentional in the home so that, I think that's our first hope Willie is it needs to start in the home and needs to be encouraged in the church then too if the home life it says we're going to study God's word and they get to church and the sermon is like 20 minutes at most and you've hard, you know, you've had a verse referenced here or there, and and you don't spend time, keep going back to God's word. I think that communicates things over time. The family is like, yeah, it's more important just to listen to kind of the minister kind of muse. And uh, God's word is, you know, we say it's important, but we don't actually spend that much time in it. That communicates things over time, too. Yeah, and I think uh, another thing I've heard, I don't remember who it was, but I've heard other people say that the role of the parent to try to avoid some of the, the legalism or some of the kind of dry dustiness is um, understanding your role as a parent, not just to get your kids to obey the standard, but but your goal is to get your kids to love the standard. Yes. Or to, and, and so not just, we don't just your goal isn't just to get your kids to obediently go to church. And there are going to be times where you just say, you're going to church, whether you like it or not, obviously, but that's not the end goal. The end goal is to get your kids to, to love it, to, to love doing family devotions, to love being in God's word, to, to love being part of the body of Christ, even though it's um, a mess sometimes, right? And, and the community is not always enjoyable to be a part of, but to love being part of that, that mess. And that's, that's our goal as a parent. And if we get there, if we just focus on obedience and this is what we do because this is what we do, then it's legalism. And then we're, we're just a Pharisee. 
um, but loving what we do, um, which is a, obviously that's a lot harder task as a parent, <laughs> right? And to be honest, it's not a task that we can even fully accomplish as a parent. That's a task that requires the, the spirit's work on their heart and regeneration. Really, that's the only way they're really going to um, learn to love these things. And so it probably tells us as parents and as pastors that we need to be in prayer a lot, that the spirit would be working in our in the hearts of our kids. Um, but I want to, I want to touch on one more thing because I think, I think you're, you're nailing it on the head. I think all of this reformation that we want to see, um, you know, we can talk about big grand strategies and all of that, but it does really begin with parents and their kids in the home. Um, and yet we have a lot of pastors, um, who listen to this podcast and, uh, and they're struggling. I'm struggling on how do I help the parents in my church, do this because it's hard. They haven't been discipled in this. Most of the parents in my church didn't grow up doing family devotions and all of that. They don't really know how to start. I'm trying to help them start, but, but what advice do you have for pastors trying to help families develop this kind of devotional culture? I would say it's always good to go to those who have it still and, uh, and are continuing to live that out. Uh, there, there are, denominational traditions where that is still emphasized the the home uh the home altar or the home uh family worship they'll call it or and you know we'll probably have to go back we'll have to go to maybe the orthodox presbyterian church where uh, and in many segments that's still very much alive and well or you know you go over to puritan reformed theological seminary with their reformed heritage books they publish and they sell a number of different books, for instance, about how to do family worship, where it lays it out. Um, it says, okay, parents, read this passage. Here are some questions to ask um, to, to talk about this. Um, so there, there's a lot of good material that's out there. We don't, you know, historically, we would just kind of teach it to ourselves, teach it to each other, and that's kind of fallen apart. And so institutionally, the it's not there anymore. So we're going to have to go to the institutions outside of ourselves that are still doing it and say, come and teach us. And so that might be uh, having a conversation, making a relationship with, you know, a pastor of a church, most likely not Christian reform that does that say, come in and teach us, you know, we're going to, we're going to have a family night here where the, the goal of it is to say, this is how you can do family devotions. Here are some books or family worship. Here's some books uh, that are helps for that. Not everyone from the church is going to attend um, because they have to want to do it too. We can offer the church, we can offer a lot of these different classes, uh, but if the families don't want to do it, they're not going to turn out for those classes. They're not going to learn. So, uh, so there has to be a hunger. That's a spiritual thing. That's a prayer thing. So we have to be praying for that, that hunger in the lives of our families too. Because we, you know, again, as ministers, we know how, how um, uh, powerless in many ways we are with our words if the Holy Spirit doesn't apply it to people's heart and their and their and their lives, things don't change. So we need the Holy Spirit to do it, and we need the Holy Spirit to then change the hearts and lives of parents to say we really need this. And a lot of times it is actually holding up models of those who do it well. And so I, I found that for myself when I see that even in the lives of some of my siblings who do family worship very well and have done a very, very good job of passing down the faith. So their kids who are now young adults, many of them themselves are passionate for the Lord, for the reformed faith, for themselves bringing up their children. 
Um, I see examples of that, of how it's done well. And I say, there we go. I could, you know, I'll send them, I'll, you know, I'll send them to my brother or I'll say, uh, you know, send them to my nephew who, who lived it. Sometimes it's just seeing that. Uh, and, and that's one of the important things of hospitality. It, just get, you know, one or two or three families in the church who do it and, and learn to do it well. And then circle in, uh, you know, kind of cycle through a, a meal kind of thing in a plan in, the, in your church to, to get other families come to your table around your table. And, and so they can see what it looks like, because otherwise it's kind of scary. This, this nebulous beast incarnationally show what it looks like around the family. And sometimes you just need one, two, you know, better to two or three families who are doing it in the church. And so cycle other families through to see what that looks like just to have a meal. And so they get an idea. Oh, this is what family worship looks like. Okay, I can do this. We can do this. Um, and and I see a lot of good things happen uh, when when I'm seeing this because I know these kids. I go to church with them. I see them, and you know maybe I had Sunday school with them, and they always come prepared, knowing their 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 Bible memory, or you know they always ask really good questions. Uh, they're very discerning. Well, they learn that around the dinner table, and so build on that sense of. Of, of credibility that's been built up that takes place in, in church family life, leverage that in a good way. Amen. Yeah. And I, one just real practical thing that I always tell families as they're working on uh, developing. So if you've never been doing family devotions or family worship, and you're trying to get into it, um, there's some of us like me who always try to jump in with both feet and try to plan an hour long family worship and, and just, you know, with, with three and four year olds and they're not paying attention and you're frustrated. And, um, and I just, and so you get overwhelmed and you don't want to do it or you get angry and frustrated about it. And I tell people just start, start and do something. Um, something is better than nothing. Don't settle for something small, but do something that's going to get you some wins. Um, do something that your kids are going to be able to sit and pay attention. And then just slowly with the goal of building upon that until you get something more uh, deeper and more robust. As your kids get older, too, naturally, the conversation, um, we go through the catechism regularly still. And my teenagers will get to things and they'll say, hey, I was just having a conversation with so-and-so at school about this. What do you think about this? And, and then it just kind of stems off into some really good um, conversations that yes. way as well. And, and when they're younger too, a, a, a helpful aid is candy. Uh, and the kids answer the question and answer maybe correctly or are really engaged you know, here's a smarty or, you know, here's, here's a lifesaver. I mean, whatever it is, here's a, a Jolly Rancher. I mean, candy is a powerful motivator when you're a kid. It's a powerful motivator for me as an adult. I'm a <laughs> too powerful motivator sometimes. So Amen. yeah, especially yeah, chocolate. And, Chocolate's and, uh, and I, I know uh, Willie would um, reaffirm this as well, but um, just reemphasizing again, the power of um, parents raising their children. Um, you know, we, we had a really robust youth ministry and I, I guess, you know, I'm bragging up on our, ourselves, but, but we did, we were really, we had a, a, an emphasis on theological depth, theological rigor, rigor, memorizing the catechism. I mean, we were really intentionally discipling kids hardcore, um, but that never made up for what the parents were doing in the home. 
And we, and we saw really strongly the kids who are getting that in the home and then getting that in youth group and then getting that in the Christian school are the kids who are now young adults and are leaders in their church and firm in their faith and, and doing that. But the kids, um, our, our youth ministry, and on a positive note, was very evangelistic. And so we'd have a lot of kids come in and they wouldn't, they'd be not growing up in a Christian home, but would convert and we'd be discipling them and they'd be going to public school and they just had one leg and we would pour into them and do everything we could, but they still were lacking in that foundation. Like we couldn't make up for what was lacking in the home um, mm. as a big one. And so just to let parents know that too, this, um, this isn't something you can just delegate out to the school or to the church. It's really, um, it's really on you to step in and take this role. And that's why God has you there. And uh, there's eternal uh, ramifications for the work that you do there. Amen. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for our conversation with Brian Cornelis. Till then, don't forget this is Christ's church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock, so keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season, and keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation. Reformation.